Hello, welcome to today's episode of From the Margins, Perspectives on Architecture. Good morning, good evening, good night. I'm your host, Germán. I'm here today with Edna Ledesma. Edna Ledesma's interests revolve around city design, planning, public space, markets, hybrid space, incrementalism, and human geography. How are you, Edna? I'm really well. How are you? I'm good. So... To begin with, uh, during these days of social distancing and especially what it what was happening in the news and all the um, the protests and everything, how's your life going? How's your have you been out to the protest? Have you been staying home and 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 just um, you know quietly been, and sadly been, watching what's happening? Yeah, I think most of most of my reaction has been. Um, I've been pretty vigilant about um, staying in, um, primarily because I, I do worry about the, you know, the floodgates of uh, COVID and uh, the reopening of many cities and, and, and sort of people um, reacting to summer as if nothing's happened. And I am really concerned with um, mm. um, the number of people I see. I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, and I'm, I'm worried about the number of people I see daily walking around without face masks and we're you know dane county has very low numbers of of, of cases um and so i think i think people are just um not not worried about potential exposure but um i have elderly parents and i do worry about when i see them and i, I was quarantining with them and, and you know of connecting course. with my family and so that's been hard but um from from then also thinking about um how to stand in solidarity with um, with our, you know, with our communities, our people of color. I think, you know, I, I fully respect and support everything that's going on. I think it's a cry for for respect that is much overdue in, in our, you know, in our society. And, and, you know, I haven't had an opportunity to to go out there primarily for, for those risks, for fear of those risks of exposure. Um, mm -hmm. But I, mean, I hope that, you know, this brings about a change that we need that you know yes. people are hungry for we're all very hungry for definitely yes of course is there a, a big movement in madison or is it uh, there has really... been so with this is uh, madison is the state capital so there were um demonstrations both um um uh, over the weekend on both days and um you know i've seen the crowds and unfortunately and you know i think it's um people are reacting to um vandalism and looting differently and I understand that um, material things can be replaced and a human life cannot. Um, but that's also, you know, frightening. And I, I, have, I haven't seen any reports of violence to the extent of um, people getting hurt, which I think is, is very respectable. And, and, and I hope it continues to be that way. I, I, you know, I have family in law enforcement and I respect their life. I worry about their safety as well. And I know that they stand for values of, of, of protecting, you know, protecting society. And so I, I feel torn in that, in that regard, because I know there are good cops out there, um, but we have to make sure that the system can be held accountable. I understand. Of course. So I'll begin with a, a formal introduction. Um, Edna Ledesma is an assistant professor in the Department of Planning and Landscape Architecture at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. The corpus of her research, uh, teaching and mentoring focuses on understanding the development of smart, green, and just 21st century city, in particular, the cultural landscape of immigrant populations, microeconomies, and their development of new understanding of city place. She holds a PhD in urban and regional science, from Texas A&M University, a Master of Architecture and Master of Urban Design from the University of Texas at Austin, and a Bachelor of Environmental Design from Texas A&M University. She's a Ford Foundation Dissertation Fellow. In 2016, she was the Emerging Scholar of Race and Gender Fellow in the School of Architecture at the University of Texas at Austin. And in 2017, she was a Carlos E. Castañeda Postdoctoral Fellow for the Center for Mexican-American Studies at the University of Texas in Austin. So you've been always involved in architecture and the public uh, space. What uh, took you there? What was your, uh, have you always been interested in that? Or, you know, what took you there? 
Well, well, I think um, I always like to say that I, I, I credit all of my essence to my parents and my upbringing um, and thinking about my, my career path and my trajectory. Um, I think it's, it's very much an influence and a blending of, of, um, of the context that I, that I grew up in. I grew up on the border, um, much like you. Um, I grew up in Brownsville, mm-hmm. which is on the <laughs> southernmost tip of Texas. Um, and um, my parents uh, in our household, my dad is a contractor. So um, I grew up around construction sites all the time and, and was fascinated by um, that as a process um, and as, a, as an element of, of, of how to um, create cities uh, through, through design and, and through buildings. Um, and my mother, who um, um, very much through my upbringing, uh, I grew up in a very Catholic family and a Catholic family that was very much ingrained in um, advocacy and social justice uh, through faith-based organizations. And so my mom has been for many years, uh, uh, maybe much earlier in, in her uh, uh, younger days, she was very much a social social advocate, a community organizer, um, and continues to be engaged in that capacity. But you know, through their lenses, I learned to see um, the world through these two very um, unique aspects of, of understanding beauty and understanding the built environment, but then also um, connecting that to social issues. And so um, even though I, I, you know, I left Texas, I left South Texas to go to school because at the time I couldn't study architecture in the universities um, um, that were there. And so I, I went to Texas A&M um, to study environmental design. And, um, and I, you know, I, I felt very, prepared to succeed in that environment as a professional architect. But um, as, as I continued to matriculate through upper level courses and studio, when um, issues of the city and issues of um, understanding uh, social implications and the social context of, of urban environments, um, I realized that I cared a lot more about people. And I realized that architecture um, is, a, is a vessel for that. But if you don't put people first, um, architecture could also be um, the um, an instigator of injustice and uh, marginalization and um, um, and disparities in our cities. And so um, I, I've sort of always grappled with that tension because I believe that hmm. in the power of design. Um, but I also think that you know, as designers, we have to think humanistically and we have to think about um, society um, um, and how we can. Um, contribute to um living in a prosperous democracy so yeah so i would say my my context comes from my parents (laughs) yes yes pretty much and and it's it's very interesting what you mentioned about the you know the border and how that influenced your your of course you are bringing and what you now are studying very much similar in my case and which, of course, my bad. I should have mentioned that at the beginning. Is like that's one of the reasons why I invited you. She's a fellow fronteriza, of course. Uh, but um, yes, what I what I wanted to to kind of like go back to is precisely this. What interested me in what you were saying was uh, precisely this conception that I found very much common here in the U.S. that architecture is very much disengaged from the social uh, perspective, from the social, um, um, yes, like that the field of architecture is not very much engaged in the social aspects and urban um, fields or even the landscape fields are much more engaged in it do you feel that this is still something that it's happening or or that it's changing or do you feel that this or to put it in another way do when do you feel that this changed do you feel that it's that before it was different that architects in another time were much more socially involved and that in some uh, time and history, it changed into an architecture that was completely disengaged of, of what people wanted and, and, and got interested in just creating objects? Well, I think, I think my biggest critique of architecture, um, and particularly through, the, through a modernist lens, is 
conceiving of architecture as a form of social engineering. And the idea that the architect, this architect with a capital A, has the capacity to control every single human behavior um, within, contained within a particular building envelope or even within the social fabric of the city, thinking about infrastructure, thinking about um, controlling um, movement and flows of people, controlling activity. And, and, and the, this idea of sort of micromanaging in a way um, how mm-hmm. society might operate, um, I think that is fundamentally the biggest um, detriment that um, the modernist movement brought to the field of architecture. And even at the same time, we saw in that particular time frame, um, the disaggregation of, of particular fields, we saw the rise of, of, of urban planning as an independent field. Um, we've seen in the later part of the 20th century, um, the, in, uh, the creation of landscape architecture, as you mentioned, as, as another champion mm-hmm. for that change. Um, and even the field of urban design um, as an, accre- not an accredited field, but as a field um, where you might be able to um, become, um, uh, get a particular degree in that field versus having a certification, right? So um, yes, a yes, large yes. landscape architecture and architecture and planning have certifications, but urban de- design does not, right? There's no... Uh, entity or, or, or body or organization that sort of champions that field as a professional or um, professional field. So um, I think that personally, that is a, a, my biggest critique of the field of architecture and thinking about its disconnect, disconnection to the human condition. And the problem that that has stemmed is that much of our um, of the curriculum and how architecture is continues to be taught um, follows those principles. Um, and so when you do not introduce um, human relationships and human and social interaction into architecture until third, fourth year of, of, of the foundation, um, that's a problem. That's a problem that students are learning, are learning to, like you said, object-based design thinking as opposed to mm-hmm. humanistic thinking. Um, and yes. so I, I do have hope for the field of architecture because there is change. Um, you know, issues of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion are beginning to emerge um, from um, the side of architecture, but they're behind. You know, I think that's that's been my struggle in, in seeing the challenges in particular because um, it is, it is a, a narrative that has to bring about a lot of change uh, in how we are educating um, our students to think about design. Yes, and I guess that, I mean, we'll come back to that topic precisely when we talk about the relationship of what you're talking about and the name of the of the podcast of the margins and how design and the field of architecture or the field of the built environment relates to other fields and how this marginality of these other fields intersect with with the field of architecture. And it's precisely in those intersections where this new architecture is coming to to exist. Mm -hmm. And this new architecture and this new type of design or this new type of design of the built environment, it's actually becoming more socially engaged and more inclusive and more um, just more more grounded so and that's why precisely I'm interested in in that marginality you know and not that architecture that it's from the canon and that canonical architecture that it's precisely more object and form uh, mm-hmm. oriented mm-hmm. than not um, this other um, architecture with a capital A like you were <laughs> designed by the by the architects with the capital A too. Um, so um, I guess that the the question is, and and I I kind of know, well, but the, but the audience doesn't. Uh, what are you doing now? What uh, what is what is it that you are working on now? So my emphasis over the last few years, and and my passion is really thinking about. Um, elements of the city that um, are have the capacity to um, work at the intersection of place, right? So thinking about social interaction uh, and inclusion. 
most of my work uh, has primarily been um, around working with Latino communities and thinking about um, uh, developing a planning and design agency for the Latino community, which has been traditionally a marginalized and underrepresented uh, group uh, in thinking about voicing um, from the bottom up uh, concerns about um, uh, the right to the city and access to the city. Mm. Um, and so I have been working um, over the last few years in um, looking at um, the role of markets, specifically flea markets and swap meets um, as mm. sort of, uh, havens or um, centers of, of, of incredible rich uh, social fabric, social interaction, but also um, not just human capital, thinking about uh, economic development issues and their potential to support micro-business developments and entrepreneurship. Uh, and so I've worked uh, specifically in uh, markets in Texas and California. Uh, and okay. as I continue to um, evolve and also in particularly at this junction that we are at, as a crisis, uh, I have, um, I'm, I'm moving my work to um, also tackle issues of um, uh, food security and food justice. Um, this is something that has come up um, very severely and very um, uh, quickly um, as we saw um, the economic decline and the economic impact of COVID, right? The incredible, mm -hmm. um, you know, sh sharp turn of uh, visibility of needs of communities and specifically when it comes to food access. Um, at the University of Wisconsin, um, I've had the privilege to come and work with a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Alfonso Morales, who is a champion um, in the field of, of, of food access, but also uh, markets. He studies a lot of farmers markets and thinking about um, the role of that within the field of planning. Uh, we uh, co-direct the Kaufman Lab for um, the study of food systems. And uh, we are in the process of developing a number of projects around that specifically in thinking about how to respond from an academic perspective. Um, one of the most challenging things that we've seen in thinking about communities, specifically for me in Brownsville, which is um, my community and the place that I hold deeply in my heart as a place that I want to support. Um, you know, this is a, this is a, a, a wonderful, um, uh, a wonderful enclave that um, is entirely geographically marginalized, but represents a rich community with a lot of grassroots mo uh, movement. And specifically their farmer's market um, is championed by the Brownsville Wellness Coalition, which is uh, a nonprofit organization that um, whose main um, goal is to address uh, um, health, uh, 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 the health and well-being of, of the community. And so um, mm. one of the things that we've, we've come to realize from this um, awareness of the lack of food and food insecurity is that we don't, we don't really even have a baseline of knowing what are the needs, you know, what, what, is, what, is, what does food insecurity actually look like in our town? Uh, and so um, one of the things that I've, that I've come to realize is that those base numbers are incredibly important to telling that story um, and to helping secure additional resources and to make a plan and take a step forward in, um, in addressing for change. So um, I think it, although food hadn't really been um, at the core of my research, uh, I think food has an incredible role to play in thinking about that intersection of, of, of community building uh, and social interaction and also um, how to support communities economically. So I'm really And excited. it's starting to mutate that yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. So I'm really excited for that trajectory um, and, and specifically in a time like now where we, we just have to, we have to help. Yes, and actually when we have to start to think of alternative ways of um, economies, alternative ways right. of, of the capitalism. Mm -hmm. And and I believe that in a way going back to to community-based 
economies is mm-hmm. is definitely a, um, an alternative, a positive alternative for our communities. And and thinking about Brownsville and thinking about the the Valley of of Texas, which is geographically well positioned in 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 terms of water access, um, climate, like the the weather, the climate, it's it's very, you know, positive for for the production and the agricultural production. I mean, historically, it was an Mm agriculture-based economy until, well, we all know the the maquiladora industry and all of (laughs) that. Until NAFTA. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And um, your dissertation was uh, based around uh, similar issues or was it uh, uh, different? It was. I mean, so I I looked at... um, trying to address um, or, or really looking at defining the role of markets. And, and I think specifically that the subset of, of what I've defined as Latino vendor markets, these swap meets, these temporary flea markets that occur mm-hmm. um, and have been from in many of the cases happening for you know decades um, that have become um, um, ingrained in uh, in the livelihood of these communities, they're social anchors. They're, um, mm-hmm. They have the capacity to provide um, an, an income to many families, to low-income families, but also just um, uh, in, for a community that is very family-oriented, um, what a market does as a, as a traditional element of, of the city, um, it's a place where um, you, you are a part of that community. And so the, the dissertation looked at the role of markets uh, through uh, the lens of place attachment and thinking about why is it that people come back? Why is it, or if people come back, what is it that's bringing people to these uh, non-places, right? If you take away the element of, of human interaction, you have what are in many cases empty parking lots, specifically the ones mm-hmm. that I studied, right? These are outdoor markets that have very limited infrastructure. So, And this is also something that I've continue to grapple with um, having been trained in architecture, thinking about um, how much do we build and how much do we overbuild and how much is it actually the society or the community or the, the interaction that actually defines that place. Um, and so mm-hmm. in, the, in these cases, you have very limited infrastructure, very limited physical elements on site, um, and it's temporary. Vendors come in every, every weekend and set up in a very meticulous way, these are very ordered environments, um, and they have, um, um, in a very modular system, they have their limited ten by ten space. Um, you know, circulation is, is sort of defined and by a particular path, mm-hmm. yeah. And people follow that order, right? And so um, you begin to see elements of what is the value of, um, you know, setting up at an at a corner versus setting up in the middle of an aisle. Um, you might begin to see and they and exactly and they are in the same place week by week uh-huh. and people return to that place because they know where they are going to be and mm-hmm. if they didn't buy the thing that they wanted to to get that um, weekend because they didn't have the money the next week they exactly. will return and they found the, the the you know the 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 space in the same place that they knew that mm-hmm. they were like yes it's creating community and it's creating uh, and stronger in doing all the field work, uh, I can't, I can't tell you the number of people I, I connected with outside of outside of academia or even just outside of, of the markets themselves that told me when I mentioned, you know, I'm studying these markets and I study swap meets and flea markets. And they said, oh, you know, I used to sell at the market when I was young with my parents, you know, or I would go with my grandma. You know, everybody had a story. Everybody had an anecdote and a memory of a place. Um, that was very dear to them, and and I, you know, that's those are the the market that I grew up going to, um, is something that you know, and, and that's one of the things that you know it's important to us to talk about, in in how much us as the minority of as the Latinos as as people of color, um, we have the capacity to um, deconstruct and analyze environments of the everyday that aren't necessarily talked about in the academy that aren't that aren't written about and that's something that I was very mm-hmm. shocked to see that there hadn't been a lot of work with the exception of Alfonso Morales who's my my colleague now 
and he is Latino as well. He, you know, he's also been very fascinated with microeconomies, with street vending, you know, the, the kinds of things that aren't, haven't been written about enough. And so um, that was a huge motivation for me to, you know, to write about that everyday experience that I think gives merit to our experiences and puts them in, um, you know, at the same level as, as what's, what's been written about. And that actually, that actually, in a in a way, are related to you know pre-Columbian markets, right? Like this idea of the swap meet is related to the pre-Columbian market uh -huh. that set up every week on a Saturday. Yeah, well, the Aztec market. The, the, so I have exactly a, I the have day very, that they called it. I have a very uh, I, uh, funny anecdote about that. Um, so when I received funding from the Ford Foundation uh, for the for the dissertation, we had our, our you know our annual meeting of Ford Fellows, and in this meeting, you know you have scientists in the STEM fields trying to cure cancer, and you know historians studying you know you know sixteenth uh, century whatever whatever right. So you know it's just like it's such a diverse um, uh, profile of of just thinkers in the academy, and 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 we're encourage to sort of socialize and interact and try to connect with with each other and and, I, and one of the one of those mixers I met a woman um, from Rutgers and I, I don't remember her name but you know she asked me well, what, what is your dissertation about and I said oh it's about markets mm -hmm. and she said oh she's like well, she and she was a historian and she said um, she I think she was studying like um, 16th century feminism through the lens of like um, um, nuns so very, very niche, hmm. niche field. Um, um, so she asked me, she's like, have you ever, have you ever read um, the second letter of Hernán Cortés to the king of Spain? And I said, uh, well, I've never read the first. <laughs> Little did I know the first doesn't exist anymore. It got lost. But I was, I was, you know, that was something, you know, I've never read any of those letters. Not a historian, but she said, you know, I encourage you to read it. And you're going to find something very beautiful about markets in that letter. And I found, I went home, you know, after the conference ended, I went home and I found the letter. And when I read it, I cried because I, you know, I was deep into trying to um, understand markets from a Western perspective, right? Like, you know, mm. having, having been uh, educated from a particular lens, a uh, particular point of view, uh, and then I found that letter about how, um, you know, um, these colonizers had come and discovered a beautiful market at the center of uh, Tenochtitlan. And um, there were thousands of individuals at the weekend market and they couldn't even find words in the letter. They said, like, we couldn't even, there's no words in the Spanish language to describe some of the things that we're seeing. And it's, you know, it's so beautiful because the reality is this is something that this isn't something that they brought over. This is something that's always been a part of, of ancient civilization. And specifically the Colombian culture. Colombian culture specifically, yeah. And I think that's, that's, the that's something. Yeah, the, the tianguis and the markets and the culture of what that has evolved, obviously now with the Western influence, but the, its history and its, and its um, uh, fruition was was native was was of the americas and how it has transcended over time mm -hmm. and over geographies and over culture and the organization how you know the vendors of of vegetables in in the in the pre-columbian tianguis were like all the all the corn vendors were organized in one line and all the cacao vendors in another line and all the fish vendors and like it, there was a system of organization and there was this system and this layout that is basically transcended over time and mm -hmm. that we can kind of like see mm -hmm. still in the in the swap meet yeah and in the, in the, in the organization in the pulgas exactly yeah. which yeah. Is, have transcended over culture it's it's over time over centuries it's it's really interesting and um so other than the space, other than uh, the, the cities, other than the culture, the, uh, the culture of the borders, uh, what, are, what other interests do you have? What other passions do you have? Well, um, 
interest and in, in, I'll stick with the academic side first. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that I am interested in is uh, in, and that I have been um, grappling with ever since I, I, I knew that I was going to um, be leaving Texas, right? And and I've, I'm I am Texas. I've I, I'm I represent the border. I'm of the border. Um, and um, my work has been, you know, my heart is in Texas, and and my work has been around those issues. But I think the more that I've engaged with um, national um, discourses around Latino issues, is just thinking about how to contribute to that voice and recognize that the Latino voice. Is, is not, it's not one, it's not unidimensional, right? Uh, and so I, specifically with my work with um, uh, the American Planning Association um, and with divisions, the Latinos and Planning Division, that's something that we, we continue to push forward. Um, last summer, we um, developed a webinar series in thinking about justice in the city and the role of the Latino in the, in the American city context. Um, and hmm. how to better integrate the voice of this particular community um, at a time where um, we know we are seeing and we continue to see specifically right now um, increased um, inequity, right? And 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 uh, the urban trend, the rise of the city. And I'm an urban, you know, I'm an urbanist. I, I believe that cities can save us, and, and that we mm-hmm. should densify our course. Um, but a lot of that change is unfortunately coming at the expense of communities of color that have been continued to be pushed out um, and out into yes. the suburbs and away from resources, away from um, um, their communities and their social fabric. And so um, I'm interested in that sort of broader aspect of the field. And then also just thinking about how I might contribute to that narrative in the Midwest, right? The Midwest is a very different beast. It's a very different context. Um, yes. And how I might be begin to contextualize my work here. Um, so yeah, so I think I think there's a lot to um, to grow from and to pull pull onto because um, I think that there the the field of planning and the field of design um, um, is hungry for for our voices and and I'm very grateful for that. I'm very grateful. Um, that I have a platform to be heard, and that I that I my my voice can help um, bring the voice of the community forward. You know, they're the ones that are on the ground every day doing the work. Uh, what we do, work. what we do is you know help champion that into you know into the public realm. I guess that that will be then my my next question or my next uh, comment. My experience of, you know, also being a fronterizo, but from the other side of the border, being mm-hmm. a fronterizo from Mexico, experiencing the the frontera as a Mexican crossing the border very oftenly, mm-hmm. and then going down, and I air quote, down to Mexico City and experiencing what people from Mexico City, from the center of Mexico in, in, in a very centralist country, what they thought about the border, especially uh, when when Trump was talking about the, the wall before he was president and how, of course, this was uh, way before, you know, when he was starting to talk about it. Now there's a, a, a total different conscience about it. Mm-hmm. But how at the beginning, like they didn't even believe that this was important. They completely dismissed what he was saying but also there was this this whole idea of like let him build it like we don't even need the united states like let's uh, we don't even need that connection when for us for Terisus is like what are you saying like yeah. the, there's no there's no way that we can live divided because we are we are one community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The fronterizo community, we are one community. Yeah, yeah. Yes, there's the, the Juarez, in my case, there's the Juarez community, there's the El Paso community, and there's and then there's the El Paso Juarez community. We are one. Like, we are a, a weird mix of three communities. And then I have the opportunity to come up here all the way to the northeast part of the United States and see and experience what the 
northeastern perspective of the border is and how they see the border. And I guess that my question for you being in the Midwest is, have what is your experience of your perception of what they see about the border in where you are? Well, I mean, is, I it, think... is it too different? Um, I think, I think that I want to give credit and also the disclaimer that I'm at a I'm at a major university, you know, I'm at a R1 mm -hmm. flagship state university. Um, yes, that yes. is uh, a very uh, incredible mix of um, a, a diversity of viewpoints and, a, and, and just incredible sense of understanding that, that difference and that um, tensions and politics that occur. Right. Um, so I, in the context of Madison and the University of Wisconsin, I, I think people are very aware of the political tension that has been developing on the ground. Um, I would I would argue that the majority don't obviously don't have firsthand experience, with the exception of maybe some. Mm -hmm. uh, but people do know and understand that um, this is a very challenging time. Um, for America and specifically for um, communities that are that represent um, that potential redefinition of the American identity, right? The face of America is changing, um, and we Very represent much. of a, per a particular population group that is on the rise, um, and that therefore poses a particular threat to the standard American model or ideal or image, right? It's the the American dream. Uh, that exists for some. So mm -hmm. I would say, <laughs> arguably, um, that the the context of, of my experience is, is, is understood and respected in, in at this university. Um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't assume that to be the case from the general public. I think people that are not connected to um, or aware of those ideas. Um, they don't really understand something beyond um, the quick sound bites of, of, you know, newscasts and headlines. And yes. I can give you an anecdote. I met a person when I first moved here a year ago who was not affiliated with the university. And, you know, I was introduced as a new professor who was moving here from Texas, from the border or from Texas. The person asked me, oh, where are you from? I said, I'm from South Texas. And then, you know, if you if we put this into context and I was thinking about this exactly a year ago or a year ago in August, July was when the El Paso shooting happened. It happened. Yes. And then I moved here and I was very concerned. I was very scared. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I had felt that scared in a long time to be a person mm -hmm. of color um, in a predominantly white city. And yes. so especially because it was targeted. Yeah. Like yeah. Our community was targeted. And so I, I met this woman and she said, oh, you're from the border. I said, yeah. And she's like, oh, aren't there a lot of racial tensions down there? And then, and then I said, you know, I, actually, what's ha happening is actually a humanitarian crisis. So that's what you're asking. You know, it's this issue of asylum seekers who are not being given particular rights that they are um, meant to be, you know, handed. So anyway, mm -hmm. so that that helped me put into context the reality of how disconnected many people can be, because can be. you know racial tension does not equate humanitarian crisis. Um, yes. But but that is that is as far as some people might be able to describe a particular situation, um, and that's you know unfortunately um, the reality of of many places in America that just don't know. They've, they might not have ever met a person that looked different from them. And so, um, and that, that's something that we should be worried about. Yes. I mean, I, I encountered that the interest is there, you know, the, the interest in the border issues is there. I've never uh, encountered an auditorium and, or an audience that it's not interested in, in the border situation. There is an interest. But of course, there is a lot of nuances that are lost, and there's a mm -hmm. lot of details that are lost, and there's a lot of 
of misunderstandings and there's a lot of of um or generalizations forums generalizations but also um overviews and and even i would say google views of of mm -hmm. the border you know like mm -hmm. views from like this this position of like way up there and you're not even understanding what is happening on the ground yeah that definitely i mean i cannot say it's not their fault because if you are studying the border you have to go there and see what it's happening but we because we come from there we know what it's happening because we lived it like mm -hmm. we live that situation every day and and that's that that has been my experience um mm -hmm. not that it's not that people are not interested but it's more this generalizations this lack of nuance that lack of of detail and i think if and, we, if we and, put it in the context of architecture i think you know when i i, I very much value you know the viewpoint of glenn murcott the idea that mm -hmm. we can only design for what we know and and i very much believe that that you know we can only really engage in the topics that you you're extremely familiar and comfortable with because you like you said you've lived them there there are a lot of nuances to be um extracted and dissected and explored um that unless you have that complexity of being able to understand things in isolation and also like in that stratification that it's very challenging to do that without that lived experience. Yes, and the and the the whole border is very complex, and the layers and layers and layers of complexity that it has. It's like it takes mm -hmm. time, and it takes it takes a lot to understand. Right. Yes. So, um, I mean, the question, the next question that I was uh, going to ask you is how this connects to the margins or or to the topic of of the podcast. But I guess that we have. Uh, touched on it uh, in in several ways or and in I, several I one of the uh, things matters i will add though in the context of and I, i'm sure that this could be the narrative of Juarez, but the narrative of, of of brownsville i think it's a community that um is both a benefactor and um and um has lost from its particular context um because of the fact of, like I mentioned, it's it's a place that is geographically marginalized, but also populated by a, a particular community, a majority Latino, majority Mexican, Mexican American, and of or, mm -hmm. or Mexican native, Mexican immigrants. Um, that 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 group has continues to be antagonized, specifically today, um, um, by our administration of of. Mm -hmm. Um, as not of a group that is not being accepted in the mainstream. But I would argue that, you know, we don't want to be accepted in the mainstream. We want to be who we are. Um, we want to be, we don't want to blend, you know, this idea of the melting pot is no longer a valid way of thinking about the America, the America. Yes. Um, and so the margins of South Texas um, have, um, have left us out of the bigger picture, perhaps even in the context of Brownsville. I mean, one of the things that I find fascinating is that it's a city that has the second largest number of historic properties, historically registered properties in the state of Texas. So second to San Antonio. So we have more historically landmark properties than Houston, than Austin, hmm. than Dallas. It's a beautiful city. It's got so much rich history. Um, and we have a lot of potential and we have a lot of, 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 of hunger to support our community. What, what it's lacking is it's, it's a very economically deprived city, but that isn't our only identifier. And that what angers me is that that particular statistic is what people see, is what people want to talk about. When we think about new businesses coming in from a macroeconomic development standpoint, they want to see that people have disposable income for them to want to invest. They want to see that people have a particular educational standard. Um, and yet we have um, low educational attainment. We have uh, high health risk factors, right? There's a lot to tackle and address. Those are big challenges. Um, and so, but that, that is what has brought on 
the beautiful change. And that change, like I said, it's coming from the margins. It's coming from the bottom up. And so because of the nature of our struggles and our challenges, margin, marginality, the margins of our city have made it more resilient, have made it more, um, um, made it a stronger community. And I, and I think that that is our identity. You know, we fight and, and, and we believe in supporting each other. And, and, I, and I think that's beautiful. And so um, the margins, while it is a challenging thing to accept, um, it is who we are. It's our identity. And, and I think that that is, you know, I'm proud of my community and I'm proud to, you know, to belong there. And I think that that's, that's precisely what this podcast is trying to do, to play with both concepts of margins as a geographical area, but also of margins as a concept, as a, as a theoretical concept, you know, as something that it's in between, as, as um, fields that are in between, mm-hmm. as, as many ideas that are playing in between. But going back to what you were mentioning about Brownsville and how, you know, people are not looking at Brownsville as with all its potential, I think that it's precisely what is happening with all of the border cities. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing that happens with Juarez. What when people think about what is they think about the the women, mm-hmm. um, you know the the killings. They they think about narcos. They think about the violence. And the, when people talk about El Paso, now they think about the the shooting. And like it's it's been unfortunately the border cities have been labeled with all these bad things mm-hmm. that. Um, they haven't been allowed to grow in a different way when we have a lot of history. Mm-hmm. At the end, these cities have a lot of history because they have been there for like for longer than many other uh, newer cities in, in the country because they have been places of interchange uh, between territories because they are located in between be- in between rivers, in between, you know, mm-hmm. they, they have been these places of movement of people between uh, merchandise, between uh, uh, the north and the south, and not not when territories were not even countries mm-hmm. yet. But they, they have been these locations where people stayed to move from one place to another. So, Yes, I think that that the borders, um, the border cities should be should grow and should be taken into account into in, in a in a very different way. And I hope that we, as historians, as academics, as architects, as designers, can do something to to actually put this, these cities in the map in mm-hmm. a different in a different way. So we are approaching the end of this episode and um i'd like to get to the end by asking this this question in this section that it's um so let's talk about le corbusier and i'm just kidding it's more about <laughs> wow you <laughs> really caught me off guard there <laughs> you're the first person that actually fell into it i'm i'm really glad that it finally someone fell which is yes it's it's more about let's talk about the canon uh, but in that way of like so how can we how can we talk about the canon or stay away from the canon as we continue teaching as we continue how can we resist the canon as we continue teaching as people of color as uh, people that want to be you know advancing in this uh in in the topics that we normal that we are trying to research on well i i don't think i think well my reaction was very honest but i will talk about <laughs> life i mean the reality yes, is um, i think what we can't do and i think this is a problem that exists in society is that we can't ignore our history and we can't mm-hmm. we have to give credit to the power of that particular movement of the modernist movement and its championing of a particular set of ideas um, that gave and put architecture on the map in the mainstream right 
Um, there are very few and a handful of architects that mainstream America or people around the world will recognize. Um, and we, we were, we're starting to see a little bit of that trend today as well. Some architects out there, um, but architecture is not, is not of that particular model anymore. I think mm -hmm. you would, I would argue that the architects that are, um, are of notoriety today are architects that are doing um, major civic improvements and urban architecture um, as opposed to the object oriented or even uh, even if we think about the the architecture of the modernist movement from a utopian perspective there was something very important about that movement that brought us to begin to think about what is a city and how do we how do we urbanize um, as we moved beyond the industrial revolution and we moved into um, urbanization um, after the war. So I, I don't, in modernization, specifically thinking about the machine and technology mm -hmm. and, and, and cohabiting, but we're facing very different challenges today. But what I will say is that I think in thinking about the canon in the profile of architecture education, we, we have to present it in a sense, in a way that we, we are critical of the flaws, while at the same time being respectful of its contribution. But I think the problem that I see is that the ideas continue to be applied, disconnected from the current context, and that is wrong. That's not the way that we should be thinking about the built environment. And so it's important for students and for every generation of architect to understand who were the champions, what did they do, how, why was that important? And then does that actually specifically apply today? Um, and, I, and I think that that is the lesson that isn't really discussed in the classroom. I think the idea yes, is sort of brought up and, and reproduced without that context. And that's what I was telling you at the beginning of the conversation when you were mentioning about this figure of the architect, of the omnipotent architect that basically is designing um, a way of living by designing a house or by designing the machine mm -hmm. of living. Mm -hmm. and, and I told you, like, we're going to be talking about this in the future. It was precisely about this section when we're going to be talking about Le Corbusier and we're going to be talking about the canon. And, and it's precisely about this history or this... Um, canonical way of designing because it can go in two ways it can go into the in our seminars in our in our history of architecture or, or design or history of urban or urban history or in the studio courses that that we teach into the methodologies or into the histories that we that we teach and are we going to keep repeating the same mistakes in a way that, that we were taught in the same methodologies to design into what we were saying about, uh, you know, in the, in the studio courses and designing the object and then the object position in the city and basically not taking, not caring about the, the environment, not caring about, not even the, the environment as a natural entity, but the environment that like the city the context. The, 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 the context, the street that is in front of your of your parcel, the, the street that is crossing in front. Like, you know, like like many studio reviews that I've been to, that it's like there's no sight. <laughs> there's exactly. no sight. Yeah, it's an object in a field. And that is we, we even just like can if, if we had one change to make that would significantly impact the outcome of architecture education is no studio should ever be taught without a site. That is, that is wrong. That's wrong. And, and, and look at the impact that would have. I don't know if it's, uh, and, and I'm not criticizing um, any studio reviews that I've been directly. Um, but I do remember that when I, when I studied architecture, one of the main things that we did, and the, I studied architecture in Mexico, it was a site analysis. We didn't start it to design. We, like, we were not allowed to draw a line without a site analysis. And it's something that I'm lacking here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. 
I've never been to a review where I've seen a site analysis. And I don't know if it's because it's a master's level. I don't know if that happens in the undergrad. I hope that when I have the opportunity to teach at the undergrad level, they do it. Or if not, it's going to be my, you know, my contribution to the, to the studio course that I will be teaching. But it's like, how could you not be doing a site analysis? How could you not know where the sun comes in, where like, you know, the, where the wind comes in, like where the streets, where the cars you know, turn, like all these very basic elements that you have to know when you're designing something that it's going to be positioned in a city. Yeah. And, and, and I don't, I don't think you're alone in having that reaction. Uh, and, and maybe for you, it's shocking because you've had experiences in other contexts. Um, but even, um, you know, I can tell you that my, uh, my mentor um, in architecture um, is the biggest urbanist um, and the biggest champion of, of, of designing um designing with our understanding of the elements, designing with an understanding of respect for humanity and respect for others. Um, and then, and, and how can architecture unfold in synergy with those forces? Um, and, and I'm very grateful and thankful for that and for his, for his contribution and shaping my ability to, um, to grab on to um, the power of design while also recognizing the need to understand these forces and these externalities. And, and you know, this is a professor um, at the University of Texas at Austin, um, Dr. Simon Atkinson, and he is, uh, he's an incredible mentor uh, to a lot of people that I, I know that he's touched a lot of lives. He specifically touched mine hmm. in a very significant way. Um, but he teaches graduate and undergraduate architecture, and 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 in my experience, having co-taught with him, having been at his side, we have that same struggle um, in 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 both you know levels of of, of the academy. Um, of the but academy. you know, you just have to you know keep keep on questioning the status quo because it's it's going to take time to change. Yeah, to go back, it's not even changes like. It used to be like that, you know. It's like it's nothing I don't know new. That it it's ever like, was. I don't. I mean, and maybe, it, like you said, it is in Mexico, but I don't know. Was that the same here? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Exactly. I mean, uh, and and that's when I agree with you that the when you mentioned uh, before about how urban studies, it's much. It's it's a much more humanistic um, field. Because I've been in the reviews of the urban studies uh, studios or the, again, the landscape studios, and they have these beautiful graphics, which at least, you know, are seeing graphics when they are paying attention to the environment, when they are paying attention to the larger scale of things, where they are paying attention to the context, when they are paying attention to other elements of the the environment where are that where they are designing and you see that there is an an understanding and at least a, an open uh, mind mm -hmm. to see that the objects that they are putting into this land are thought in a in a bigger picture not just as an object that it's being positioned so I don't know. I, I, I believe in the figure of the designer as a, as a person that designs everything. I don't believe in the designer as, you know, the, that designs architecture, that designs landscape, that designs like I, I prefer that person that is able to design in a in a bigger context because it's able to see the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. But of course, it doesn't exist anymore. Like well, we're tending that's the to that's like the, compartmentalize. But I think that's also the reality of our fields and, and architecture is 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 perhaps uh, slower to to recognize or awake to this movement is that interdisciplinary collaboration is the key. I mean, this is how this yes. is how practice works, and, and that that kind of model needs to be brought into the academy, and it needs to be a part of how we teach studios with different at the center, different way of thinking, different expertise, different ways of understanding the built environment. 
Um, and that, that would make would a, be big a great difference. studio. Mm-hmm. That will be a great studio, like urban, urban studio, urban uh, designers, landscape architects, all of them designing something, and all of them putting their expertise together to design in their different scales mm-hmm. and paying attention to the different details. That will be amazing. That that will be a dream to participate in. <laughs> okay, so to close, um, in this quarantine, we're always almost only uh, surrounded by our books. And I would like to ask you, um, which is your favorite book or which is the book that it's been following you from Brownsville to Texas to UT to, and now to Madison? Well, I don't know. I don't, unfortunately I did not discover this book soon enough, but I mean, I think early enough to, to make an impact on me now um, but I've, I've discovered this book um, while writing my master's thesis, um, and I absolutely hold dear to my heart every time I am tackling a new project, because um, specifically thinking about the intersectionality of design and, and, and planning and just the everyday life, um, and that is um, Richard, Richard Sennett's uh, The Uses of Disorder. It was published in 1970, um, and uh, while the message is a particular critique of the human condition and our inability to be comfortable and accept the unknown, the other, the difference. It was written at a time where suburbanization had peaked um, and Hmm. we had to recognize that in our American ideal, we were training and we were ingraining a particular way of thinking that was afraid of people that look different from you. And that message continues to resonate today. Um, The the idea that we have to design our cities and our built environment for people to be comfortable to interact and and be exposed to difference and conflict and tension. Um, Because when we don't, then people are afraid of of something that becomes a myth, becomes um, a theory, uh, rumors, um, and that this fear that controls our society is our ultimate doom, right? I mean, the book itself is, is really a call for a Marxist thinking, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I don't need to go into. <laughs> but uh, in the end of the day, I think the message still resonates today. And just, I mean, and the idea of like, how much can we control and what we shouldn't control? You know, it's part of part of who we, what we want to do as designers. And what we, what we really should be doing is not thinking about separation. We have to be thinking about that natural flow of like, you know, like we talked about in the border the movement of goods Hmm. and the movement of people. And that's natural. That's important. Sounds like a very interesting summer reading. It's a great book. I have to, I have to be writing, but for, for a lot of other people, it might be a good reading. When you're ready to dive in, it's a great, it's a great book. (laughs) Exactly. I will. I will definitely. And uh, this is the last uh, section of it. And it's a section that I took from one of my favorite uh, podcasts. Uh, it's called Latinos Who Lunch. Shout out to them. And it's about recommendations. And it's about, um, well, I would like to ask you, what is a book, a series, a podcast, or something that it's thought-provoking for you that you would like to recommend to us? Well, I have two things. So as a book, I recommend um, the book um, Invisible Women. Um, by mm-hmm. Caroline um, Criado Perez. It was published in 2019. And I think just thinking about understanding the base, uh, baseline understanding of, of the marginalization of women in society and um, what are the implications of that on our built environment, our infrastructure, on our opportunities, and, and just you know get, getting a, a wide profile of that, that, that narrative, mm. I think is really important, especially as a, as a woman uh, in in what has traditionally been a male-dominated environment in the academy. Uh, But from a similar perspective, I think something fun that I very much recommend, um, there's a show on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen um, Gentified. Yes. Yes, okay. So it's a great (laughs) show. I I love sort of the nuances and the narrative around um, um, the complexity of the Latino identity, um, the Latino American yes. identity, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the, the want to belong yet, um, the need to protect your family and the tensions around, um, 
all of those issues, I think it's it's done really well. Um, and I, and I'm the characters are yes. Yeah, the characters yeah. are very complex and they're very yeah. rounded and yeah. and I like the way that they build the character during the whole series. I yes, I I really like it. Yeah, and that's that's something that's a great thing to binge watch since we're all locked in for a while. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's great. So, anything you would like to add, Edna? No, I just really this was wonderful. This was really nice, and I, again. Thank you so much for the invitation, Herman, and, and um, you know I wish you all the best as you continue to wrap up your writing this summer, and you know let's continue the conversation. I'm sure we yes, have plenty thank- to talk about. <laughs> of course. Well, thank you very much for being here with us, and we'll see you next week. Thank Great, you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please follow us on From the Margins podcast on Instagram and on From the Margins Perspectives on Architecture on Facebook where you can find links to the webpage and more information on the links about the topics we discussed during the episode and the channels to communicate with me. I would love to hear from you and your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate us. The more subscribers and better reviews means more representation. Thanks again.